Gracious God, by your word, you provide all we need for salvation, for wholeness, for abundant life. Now draw us close in your spirit so that we may discover your will and live according to your purposes. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis chapter 45, verses 3 to 11 and verse 15. Listen now for God's word. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after that his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I thought that preaching on Joseph would be fairly easy and straightforward. And the scene of Joseph revealing himself to his brothers in Egypt kept coming to mind while deciding which passage of scripture to highlight in Joseph's story. But after choosing these verses, studying them again, and reading multiple commentaries, I realized just how difficult a passage I actually chose. In fact, Becky Sr. and Anne Strong can attest to this fact, uh, as yesterday they were here preparing for communion, and I admitted I still had not put words to paper. But before I dive into why this is such a difficult passage on which to preach, let me back up first and at least recap how we got here for those of you who haven't read the story or haven't read it in a while. When we're first introduced to Joseph, we're told that he was the favorite son of his father, Jacob, also known as Israel, and a child of Israel's old age. Joseph is the first son of Jacob's preferred wife, Rachel, yet he is younger than all but one of his 11 brothers. Now, whether or not Joseph was made this way by his father's preferential treatment, or it was just Joseph's character, At the beginning of the story, we're introduced to Joseph the teenager, 
who is at best naive and at worst a spoiled brat. He boasts egotistically about these dreams he has of his brothers and then his father, too, bowing down before him. With his brothers already jealous of the attention Joseph received from their father, this just seems to push them over the edge. And when Joseph meets them in the countryside away from home, the brothers conspire to get rid of this dreamer. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt and goes to work initially for a captain of the guard, Potiphar. Joseph seems to mature quite a bit in this stage, refusing to bend even to the desires of Potiphar's wife as she tries to seduce him. That story alone could be its its own whole sermon, but to make a long story short, Joseph gets put in prison, sinking him down to the lowest point of his life. But we're told that God was with Joseph through it all. And because of God's presence with Joseph, Joseph found favor with the prison guards and gained more responsibility there than even in Potiphar's household. We see God's presence with Joseph, especially in his ability to interpret the dreams of two of Pharaoh's released from prison to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh himself. With God's help, Joseph reveals to Pharaoh that seven years of harvest and seven years of famine are coming. After 13 years of enduring prison, Joseph is put in charge of organizing the entire process for gathering and saving during the good years for the people to have food in the years of famine. Now, fast forward to our scene, and we can see that we are now two years into the famine portion of that. The famine is bad not only in Egypt, but throughout the entire surrounding areas. Jacob and his family have run out of food twice now and have returned with Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, completely unrecognizable to them. We can assume that he assimilated to much of Egyptian culture, dressing and looking differently, but also I think that Joseph is unrecognizable because of the evident inner transformation that has occurred over the past 20 plus years since his brother sold him into slavery. Joseph has endured much suffering and gained the wisdom that I think can only come through times of hardship. At this point, They are astonished and dismayed at his presence, probably afraid of the retribution coming their way because of what they did to Joseph all those years ago. But in an act of divine irony, the wronged one endures, uh, ensures the safety of those who endangered him. Joseph consoles his brothers not to be distressed or angry with themselves for him into slavery. For God sent him before them to preserve life. By responding faithfully to his brother's treachery, Joseph rescues Israel from a killing famine and so ushers forward the larger purposes of God. <laughs>
It's at this point in a simplistic world that I could simply make the connection to other scriptures about all things working together for good, or the obvious exhortation to forgive as Joseph forgave, and say, that's a wrap, and send you all back out into the world. But that's what makes this passage so difficult for me to preach, because the world isn't simplistic. And forgiving someone for trauma that impacts your life for decades is difficult, especially if you're still stuck in the mess. So often we think of the Joseph story as one in which the Lord was with Joseph and the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. But that is certainly not how many, if not most of us, faithful and faith-seeking people experience our lives, or our God. The pandemic and increasing polarization of our nation and world have brought back into stark focus the age-old questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? How are we supposed to understand God's activity in such a flawed world? And when we're in the midst of suffering, I think the natural reaction is to ask, why? Why me? Why now? I wasn't sure whether or not to share this, and I didn't actually share it in the 830 service, but I think it's important for you all to know a part of my own story, so that you know that when I say what comes next, it's not empty words. So some of you have heard my story, but when I was in high school, basically between my sophomore and senior year, I was one of at least half a dozen young girls who were sexually abused by our youth director. And it took six years after the fact for me to even call it that and recognize what had happened to me and to my friends. And I asked for years, why, God? Why would you allow this to happen to me? Why would you allow this to happen to my good friends? And unfortunately, I've never gotten an answer to that question. And I think that rarely do we get an answer from God as to why these things happen. What I am certain of, and what the story of Joseph shows us, is that God uses all of the hard things in life for growth, and wisdom as means to a redemptive future, transforming us and those around us into new creations. I can tell you that year after year, I see glimpses of how God is still redeeming my own story, bringing me into company with others who have 
gone through similar things, giving me caused any of that to happen to me or to anyone else, but, but I know that God uses and transforms it. The good news in this story is not that Joseph prospers because the Lord is with him, but that the Lord is with him. God is present in the blessings and through hardships, in feasts. Never alone. Blessings are not health and wealth. Blessings are the presence of the divine in the everyday. Although the brothers planned evil, God's design turned it to good, showing us here at the end of Genesis a truth about how God operates. God uses human sin to bring about God's will. Biblical scholar W. Sibley Towner says it this way, let Joseph's remarkable theological claims simmer in your mind while you conjure up pictures of the slave trade and the Indian wars, Auschwitz and atomic explosions. Can one and the same event be both evil and in God's hands good? God does not want the brothers to do what they do. God does not order them to do what they do. Yet, when they do it, God does not walk away and leave Joseph alone. God is not defeated by what they do. They do it. God uses it. In God's infinite wisdom and love, God gives all creatures the choice to love God and love others, to serve God and serve others. And unfortunately, that means we often do choose not to love. And that's when people get hurt. As liberation theologian Miguel de la Torre puts it, evil happens, but the theological claim being made by Joseph is that in the midst of trials and tribulations, Emmanuel, God, is with us. Even when there is no happy ending, as so often is the case with the disenfranchised, we are not alone. Here's the other good news. We may not be like Joseph on the other side of suffering, able to see God's gracious hand through it all. But we know what Joseph could own of. We know the ending already of the story. We know that Jesus, like the new Adam, is also a new Joseph, betrayed, mistreated, handed over to death unexpectedly revealing himself as alive, offering forgiveness and new life. When God raised Jesus, 
Jesus became the first fruit of the resurrection that we will all one day experience. God sent him before us to preserve life, to redeem, to buy back all of us stuck in the hardships of life in a flawed world. In Christ, God is indeed bringing all things together for good. And that is an assurance that can bring hope in any circumstance. The English mystic Julian of Norwich lived at the end of the 14th and the beginning of the 15th century. During those years, the Black Death was the most devastating pandemic in human history, killing anywhere between 75 and 200 million people. Julian was a Benedictine nun who herself was mortally ill. And during her illness, she had visionary experiences. Recording these visions, she wrote the first book by a woman in English. She says, And so our good Lord answered to all the questions and doubt which I could raise, saying most comfortingly, I may make all things well, and I can make all things well, and I shall make all things well, and I will make all things well. And you will see yourself that every kind of thing will be well. Friends, this is not a cheery optimism or smiley button faith. Rather, it is an affirmation of the mystery of God's love in all things, in all circumstances. Even in the midst, let us continually recall the words of our Lord and Savior. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart for I have overcome the world. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks that you are with us in everything. Open our eyes and our hearts so that we can see you when we most need it. Amen.